0: The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German engineered blades, well designed handles, and shipping right to your door just in time for the holidays. Get $5 off the Winter Winston model even if you're a returning customer. Visit Harry's.com and use the promo code TheGistHoliday. That promo code again, TheGistHoliday. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, December 12th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. They say that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. But I say Sirius Channel 125 is the last refuge of the patriot. That is the name of the channel for a certain type of political programming. Would you like to guess? Is it left-wing political talk, right-wing political talk, or centrist political talk? Of course it is. You guessed it. It's right-wing political talk. And I was thinking of this... When I heard that current CIA director, John O. Brennan, described the CIA officers who tortured, sorry, can't call them torturers, but you can call them the black site question askers, the attention grabbers, the abdominal slappers. These were all things that they did. Torture is way too incendiary. Call them the stress positioners. So he called them patriots. Why did patriotism, the word patriotism and patriot, fall into the hands of just one half of the American public? Sometimes you will hear a liberal defending their own patriotism by saying, I think it's patriotic to dissent. I think it's patriotic to question my government. Yeah, well, maybe, but that's not exactly getting at patriotism definition, vehemently defending your country. I am a patriot, more so, I think, than many self-styled patriots. A lot of self-styled patriots, Tea Party patriots, don't like the government, don't like the president, don't like broad swaths of the electorate. What do they like? Each other? The land? The wide-open prairies? Are they patriots or geologists? See, I'm claiming patriotism, Because if you love America, and if you want to vehemently defend America, you want to face down America's problems before the problems become overwhelming. I had a neighbor who loved his classic car. Now, did he ignore a clanging sound? No. He addressed a clanging sound right away. Didn't make him less of a car lover, made him more of a car lover. So what are the problems of America? Things like economic disparity, educational imbalance... I don't call these problems because I'm not patriotic. I call them problems because I am patriotic. It's preservation. If you love it, you want to fix it. Like the car enthusiast, a teacher who points out and corrects the mistakes of her pupils. Does she do it because she doesn't support them? Is that why she's voicing criticism? No, it's because of her commitment. So were the CIA torturers patriots? Maybe they were. But it would be for other things they did elsewhere, not because of what tubes they inserted into what rectums, in what black sites. The people who confront and correct their actions, those are the real patriots. Whoa, the soapbox is getting a little creaky. So I will tell you what's on the show today. In the spiel, I ask, are we all children? And we do a post-prudence impact statement. Older people's sex lives. I'm not at all uncomfortable with this conversation. But first... In the wake of Ferguson and Staten Island and the anger that followed, I ask, is there a right and a wrong way to protest? The outrage over decisions not to indict policemen in 2 high-profile cases sparked protests across America. In New York City, there are still a couple of sporadic die-ins. Traffic hasn't been tied up too badly for a couple of days now. In places like Berkeley, California, protests are very much ongoing. Ferguson, Missouri, still trying to process not just the no-true-bill, the grand-jury... Gave forth, but the reaction afterward that occasionally went beyond civil disobedience. Is there a right way to protest? Not meaning, is there a right way to utilize your rights, but a most effective way to get your message across or to get change to occur? Follow-up question If there is, can an angry, sometimes despondent protester be convinced to adhere to best practices? Joining me is Tricia Rose. She's a professor at Brown, the director of the Center for Study of Race and Ethnicity in America. Hello, Tricia.
0: Hey, nice to be on.
1: Absolutely. So Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. Mm. But can that language be harnessed and directed?
0: Mm. You know, that language can absolutely be harnessed and directed. I mean... You know, riots are not always completely unorganized. Um, Sometimes they are elements of a a more organized protest that may have gotten uh, extra robust. But I think what he was really trying to focus on was the the way that power works, right? That people who have substantial power that is not really democratic, that is not representing the collective needs of the great masses of a given society has to understand riots not as a threat to law and order in some principled sense, but a threat to unjust power. Very few people who risk their lives and their communities and burst into outrage just randomly because they're quote-unquote thugs or criminals or troublemakers. That is the way that real legitimate concern is devalued. But in fact, people make those kinds of choices, very unwillingly. And they do it only when they feel things have gone too far.
1: So it seems to me that in Ferguson, the debate around, not the decision, but the reaction afterwards was more of a, can they be excused? Can it be explained? You know, whose fault is it? Whereas in New York, where things weren't bad, there wasn't rioting, but there was a lot of disruption. The debate seemed to be, is this really the best way for protesters to go about it? What do you think of either of those questions? Uh, the
0: underlying position is, is this necessary? Right? I mean, both, both questions have that kind of underpinning in them. Look, you cannot expect a bureaucratic success story to grow out of these cases. When you have a case like Eric Garner and a case uh, like Mike Brown and Trayvon and the, and the many others, these are what you call tip of the iceberg cases. They are extreme, highly visible, highly mediated, you know, promulgated through the media cases that are actually sitting on top of a whole systemic process that is not going to be easy to change because they're not exceptions. They are a set of rules that, while not explicitly racist in language, work out to produce tremendous negative racial effects for black and brown young people. So, and old people, frankly. So what you're dealing with there is something that has to be dealt with with a level of tremendous public pressure. Well, how does the public register pressure? Yes, you can have petitions and drives. You can pay for senators and influence through campaign contributions like Citizens United allows, but most working and poor people don't have the resources to access that kind of power. What they have is the ability to stop the everyday life, and traffic in the metaphorical sense, to stop day-to-day life, and to demand through that a set of requirements. Now, you said New York you know, didn't have was negative protests, but there are protests continuing. There are some yes. plan for this weekend. Yes. This is not over. <laughs> so I don't know what will happen. I hope all protests are safe, but I also hope the pressure continues to such a degree that it's undeniable that it has to be dealt with. And that's what poor people have on their side
1: inconveniencing others compared to the tragedies that happen it seems like not even a choice and i've spoken with protesters who say some version of you know if we don't act outraged how will anyone else know this is outrageous then again may i do think that there is a line a line to cross i i look at some of the stuff that happened in Ferguson, and even that's going on in Berkeley. And I wonder, at a certain point, are they hurting their cause? Is that a legitimate concern, or is that, you know, my privilege speaking?
0: Well, (laughs) look, I, you know, when I teach issues around social justice and social movements, I never say that, you know, the goal is destroying property, acting violently, harming people, right? That's never, to me, a goal that I would want to support. And I think what you want to do is harness that kind of energy and outrage toward as many productive but serious and long-standing changes as you can. That is, uh, to me, the only ethical position. At the same time, we must not pathologize and stigmatize and reject movements that fail to perfectly harness this kind of intense human feeling. Yeah. If you are a young person of color in any major city, but particularly just for the sake of argument, Cleveland or New York, right, you are facing a kind of hostile terrorism of your body in relationship to the source that is supposed to protect you. And that constant state is incredibly terrorizing. You know, you're talking about many, many people in these communities on parole, arrested for tiny things, constantly harassed, detained, stopped, mistreated, called names, beaten up. Everyone has hundreds of stories. You just go randomly. Just ask a group of black and brown people. Everyone will raise their hand. So either you think everyone's crazy or we have a major problem. now. If we assume people are sane, which is, I think, a reasonable assumption, then what we're saying is when you see these riots, when you see a small group of people going too far, sure you have just some, some perhaps young people who are just going too far. But you also have a pent-up, very legitimate rage, a rage that has gone gone on over and over and over throughout the 20th century that the country itself has to be honest it's responsible for in large measure. You can't just pathologize the individual's.
1: Sometimes a mental exercise that I do for myself is I say, well, what if these protesters were behind a cause I totally disagreed with? What if they were blocking traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge to try to limit a woman's rights to abortion? I would be incensed. (laughs) Whereas at the same time, if they were peacefully assembling outside the Supreme Court, I would say, that's great. That's the First Amendment. Am I a hypocrite? (laughs) Well, how should I think of that?
0: You know, I think it's one thing to say... You don't like a law and a system that's in place versus you're really talking about your own personal experience of being mistreated. Uh, I mm-hmm. do think there's a bit of a distinction there because we have lots of different political points of view. But I, I, I do think when you're talking about mass-scale injustice, you're very likely to have this kind of mass-scale disruption. But, you know, this is what a democracy requires.
1: Tricia Rose, professor at Brown University, Director of the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America. She's at TriciaRose.com. Thank you.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Harry's is a great razor company. They make great razors. They're the razor I use. They have a Winter Winston razor. It's a a special kind of blue, a cobalt blue razor. They have more of a olive greenish razor it's very cool razor makes a very nice gift they have an option you could even engrave the razor you know if you're giving a gift for a man if you're not a man it's kind of nice it's like one of the few moments of the day where you can do nothing but revel in your own manliness you know I'm I'm growing fur on my face. Now I am taking hardened steel to abate this fur. It's just kind of whatever you do the rest of the day, that is the most manly thing you will do. You'll probably not chop anything else with steel that day. So right now, fans, listeners to the gist can take advantage of a promo they have. And even this is true even if you've taken advantage of a past Harry's promo before. You go to harrys.com and type in the code THEGISTHOLIDAY and you get $5 off their Winter Winston set. So for $25, you get the razor, three blades, and foaming shave gel or shave cream. winds up being just $25. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com with the coupon code THEGISTHOLIDAY. Harry's, a shave good enough to gift. You know, so much of the time we're lost. We say, please, God, tell us what is right, tell us what is true, and there is no justice. But I actually don't appeal to God. I appeal to my following guest. She writes the Dear Prudence column on Slate.com. She's Emily Yaffe, and she can tell us what is right and what is true and why there is no justice. Hello.
2: Hello, Mike Pascal. How
1: are you? Good, thanks, and you? I'm well, and from time to time here on The Gist, we do a post-prudence impact statement where we follow up on someone who actually received Emily's advice and see what that person did about it. Who are we going to talk to today?
2: We are talking to someone who calls herself cut off from a sex life too soon. Oh. This is a woman in her 50s who is a widow of several years. She opened her letter with I think I'm gonna die if I don't have sex soon. She said she and her husband had a great vigorous sex life. He's gone and she just feels, not only his loss in her life, but the loss of her sexual vitality. She's in her 50s, men her age, want women in their 30s and younger. She doesn't know what to do. She, She lives in a city with a lot of young people. She looks at some of these young men and thinks, that would be nice. But she doesn't know how to move forward. She's saying, I'm willing to have a one night stand. She she ended with it with saying, am I weird, perverted, crazy? I miss rolling around with and holding a male body. I want to get
1: laid. Well, I will say this. The objectification of the male implicit in that is extremely offensive to me. But in reality, so what do you do? What's your tact? You could go with the practical advice. You could go with the reassuring advice. You could go with statistics. You could just say, get on Tinder, girl. What do you do?
2: Well, when this letter came in, this was before I knew you. Otherwise, obviously, would have put you two together. But... um, (laughs) Hello! (laughs) (laughs) I actually did mention Tinder. She said, look, you know, I'm uh, not a model, but I'm not a dog. And I said, you know what, if you're not necessarily looking for long-time commitment walks on the beach, what you want, you can find. Yes. Uh, So I suggested she try some of these new hookup apps, Tinder, you know, go online. And you can write an online profile that makes pretty clear long-term commitment is not uh, number one. Yeah. And I said, of course you're not perverted or crazy it's you know my my heart went out to her this is a woman with a lot of years ahead of her and i really really hoped that uh she would find someone
1: yeah it seems like a lot of her concerns were pre-internet concerns which is not surprising look at her age and you know the last time she dated was uh probably pre-internet so yeah i think she probably did need a little pep talk maybe direct her to tinder although what she didn't hear about that anyway but that's okay i'm really but
2: here's the other thing you know if if you're swiping on tinder how many people are going to swipe even if you put the most attractive photo of yourself are you going to meet ted bundy i mean it's it's a little scary
1: luckily he's dead uh he's dead (laughs) pre-internet hello hello are you cut off from a sex life too soon uh that's me whoa there was a lot there was a lot of uh tension with that question if it's not you
3: uh no, <laughs> hi Emily. Hi there. <laughs> yeah,
1: I want to say Emily's here. I'm Mike. Good to meet you. Okay, go ahead. You too. Tell me. Yeah, tell me uh, what one happened. One thing
3: I noticed is that everybody. I think I wrote in my letter that I was fifty something. hmm Because I didn't want to just pin anything down, but the fact is I'm fifty-eight,
2: so I'm closer to sixty. I think that's a very good age.
1: Emily just told me and us what her advice was to you. How did that advice land, and what did you do with that advice?
3: Well, I felt really good about what Emily wrote, and, uh, you know, it was encouraging, and she didn't make fun of me or anything like that. But as, you know, um, time went on and I really thought about it, I discovered that I'm really not cut out for one-night stands, Unless something happens, like, really naturally, if you meet somebody and you really hit it off and
2: you decide, yippee, let's go off.
1: Emily, I'm too polite to ask. You know what I'm trying to ask.
2: You haven't gotten laid, right? No. Okay. I'm sorry to hear that. Now, I want to say I did send you, I forwarded you this letter from this quite attractive lawyer in uh, out on the west coast who wanted to meet you i'm not usually doing matchmaking but he was this interesting bald jewish guy i'm married to a bald jewish guy so i have a soft spot mm-hmm. for them well, So, <laughs> <laughs> but you said you're not going to get on a plane just to explore that possibility right
3: all oh, right. It just seemed like so much effort.
2: I do have to say, cut off. I was talking to my husband about your letter and your dilemma, mm-hmm. and he did say to me, "You know, I don't know where she lives, but wherever it is, I think I'm going to have business there um, <laughs> soon." I, I don't know what he <laughs> meant by that. He was just saying he'll um, probably will be in town, so and he wanted me to find out what town that was. Um, well, you don't sound distressed, though, about this? No, I don't. I think it
3: uh, just, you know, getting that off my chest to you. um, I've never said this to anybody I know, so I wrote to you. Getting it off my chest that, yeah, sometimes I think I'm going to go berserk. But it also made me realize that I'm not the berserk sort. Yeah, I've always had a very playful side, and all that, but it's really unlikely that I'm going to go out and, uh, get, uh, I don't know how to say it, like be really upfront about things. Um, it would just have to happen where somebody and I just like clicked.
1: And no, if we clicked,
3: that's fine for, if, if it happens for a one night stand, I would have no problem with that. But I don't think that's
2: really likely to happen. All right, Mike, uh male perspective. Yeah. Older women. Yeah. Are we hot? What? <laughs> I mean Yeah, you know, look every uh, all an women. older woman who wants to get laid. What's the <laughs> what are our chances?
1: Well, and the other thing to think about is the older you get, the more the greater percentage of the male population will consider you an older woman. So, yeah, that just ups Thanks. the that just ups <laughs> the ante. Uh, I'm just speaking demographically, but what about online sites? No, no, no,
2: no. no. Ad, So, yes. come on, of I, you know, sure. Yeah. I mean, we're experienced, we're hot. I
3: mean, think about Judi Dench and Candice Bergen uh and Catherine Deneuve. Yeah. You wouldn't want to go to bed with them right now. Compare
1: yourself to the three most beautiful women in the world. Yeah. That's great for the ego. Look, what about online sites, though, just practically? I think a lot of people maybe have these hurdles, these mental hurdles, very real, emotional, you want to call it ego, you want to call it emotional hurdles, but I think that's what online sites do, you know, you go... On a site, you're going to get a couple dates, and the first two seem weird, and then the third one, either something clicks or you change. What about that?
3: Well, I did try one online site, and there were four different men who contacted me, and we wrote back and forth, and then they'd say, I'd love to meet you. Would you like to get together?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I said, oh, that sounds wonderful. When would you like to get together? And that would be the last. Thing mm-hmm. i'd hear from them
1: that's weird but it's not weird it's
3: not, no it's not weird I'm it's a numbers game my and, younger yeah. women friends also that they often get these guys they they apparently enjoy the chase but when you agree mm-hmm. to, to meeting yeah. them then they disappear what's that all about
1: maybe it just means that you know keep trying it and individual results may vary and it's not a referendum on you as a person
2: of course not it's but but I think if you do whatever people do to flag looking to get laid <laughs> you really can make some connections.
1: <laughs> I It's all it's all the username is Frisky50 taken. <laughs> frisky and 50, come on.
3: Um maybe I might be a Frisky50 or something like that or I want to get laid but I realize that I'm not bored, I'm not lonely. So I'm kind of wondering now, why should I seek a partner? I'm not bored. I'm not lonely. I've got a full life, but I don't have a sex life.
1: Well, your title hasn't changed, but perhaps your outlook has. Do we Mm -hmm. consider this a partial success, Emily?
2: Well, I think Cut Off sounds kind of zen about this whole thing, which is good. Uh, you, You know, there's no desperation coming off her. I think that's the kind of attitude that helps you possibly connect.
3: Well, I think it's um, a reality, Emily, that older women are invisible, and now I'm finding it's really not so bad, because in all my life, I've always gotten a lot of attention, and so now to not have so much attention is kind of a relief.
2: Yes, you and I probably could walk down the street, and someone could follow us with a camera for 10 hours, and not one person would say, hey, baby, so yeah, there's, (laughs) there's that.
1: Alright, well cut off from a sex life too soon. I don't want to cut you off too soon, but I think that uh there's still optimism to be had. Thanks so much for uh spending some time with us.
3: Well thank you and thank you, Emily, for listening to me and, and really give me giving me a lot to think about.
2: Oh good. I I was so enjoyed this and I hope you find someone. Okay, I'll I'll be sure to let you know if I do. Bye bye. That was bittersweet. Oh. I mean, she and I are contemporaries, so I yeah. really feel.
1: I would recommend that she keep she keep at it.
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: That was another post Prudence impact statement with the writer of the Dear Prudence column, Emily Yaffe. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Emily.
2: My pleasure. Thanks, Mike.
1: And now the spiel: Are we all children? So do you remember the UVA rape case when it came unraveled? I was talking about the worry that other rape victims will now be disbelieved. And I said that I understand the concern, but I don't think that's going to happen. And I was going to use as an example, but didn't. I was going to say, I mean, after Jackie's story came out in Rolling Stone, have you heard a lot of people saying, now I don't believe that Bill Cosby was a rapist. And I didn't even say that because it was a far-fetched thought. I thought, headline, Bloomberg View. Bill Cosby should thank Rolling Stone, in which Zara Kessler decries what she claims is the fact that, quote, What did or didn't happen at UVA now colors Cosby's story and the stories told by his alleged victims. She goes on to say suddenly every Cosby accuser is a potential Jackie. And to be clear, Zara Kessler was saying this was a bad thing. I, of course, think it's a bad thing, but I actually don't think it's a thing. I understand the concern, but I don't think people have changed their minds about Cosby. And now I think the latest allegations put forth by Beverly Johnson means that the evidence is mounting, not subsiding. But the reason I bring up Cosby is to ask, are we all children? I mean, I have read so many stories or heard so many people saying, but he was a beloved TV dad. Yes, yes. I understand that was getting in the way of people's perceptions. That was probably a reason why journalists didn't dig into these stories very hard. But now that all this information is out there to cling to the fact that he played a dad on a TV show, but he wore such cuddly sweaters. So now you as an adult, you're citing that as a barrier to your conception of how real people act in real life? Are we all children? No, but one child was sad that his puppy died. So the Pope, oh yeah, the kid was talking to the Pope. So the Pope says to the sad kid, paradise is open to all of God's creatures, which is a nice thing to say to a kid, right? Whoa, no, no, no. The Pope is not, gotta be clear, the Pope is not refuting decades-long Catholic tradition that animals do not go to heaven because they have no souls. New York Times, quote, theologians cautioned that Francis had spoken casually, not made a doctrinal statement. You can't just make such broad, sweeping assertions about a locale as tangible and grounded in reality a place as heaven with the clouds and the angels and the assumption that the soundtrack to Utopia must be incessant harp music. Side note, there has to be a real fervent believer in the literal classic definition of heaven who also absolutely loathes Joanna Newsom. How's that guy square that? Anyway, this totally, totally non-fictional place, heaven, has strict rules and procedures. We can't just open these actually there and not made up pearly gates to cattle and buzzards and the like. You want a dog in heaven? Well, the next guy wants his emu and then gnats. What about the gnats? Adults, actual adults, debate these questions in real life. Adults write books for other adults with titles like Cold Noses at the Pearly Gates. And then there's a camp of counter-adults who will quote scripture, Revelation 22:15, for without... Are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whoever so loveth and maketh a lie? Dogs top that list. Dogs two above. Sorry, three above murderers. Two above whoremongers. And by the way, there are not there's not one, but there are two references in the Bible of a dog's propensity to eat his own vomit. Proverbs twenty six eleven. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. How is that not the best idiom in the English language? Peter 2.22. But it is happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again. That, That proverb has fallen out of favor is a sad, sad thing. Forget the Christ in Christmas. We need the dog vomit in language. That's what we need. So I just want, at some point, with all this debate going on, I want the Pope to channel when Shatner was on SNL, that one sketch, maybe if not the Pope, then at least like a top theologian with a very funny hat, to stand up and say to all the people, children, debating this, Get a life, will you people? I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. You've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few years into a colossal waste of time. Are we all children? Well, babies are. Which brings me to this story on Trends in Baby Names. The Social Security Agency, very good at documenting baby names, and you can get useful stats out of them. The Baby Name Wizard, that's one good place for stats. Here's a bad place, babycenter.com. They wrote an article about trends in baby names, and they just basically made stuff up. They cite Netflix, the Netflix bump, as a explanation for baby names. Here we go. Considering how many of us were binge-watching Orange is the New Black this year, it's no wonder... Names from the Netflix original series are blowing up. The big winner is Galena, nicknamed Red, who faced the terrifying V with a spine of steel. Galena jumped 67% in our baby name rankings. It did? Galena? There were a lot of baby Galenas? I checked the raw stats. Galena went from five babies named per million to eight babies per million per million. There are 2 million female babies born in the United States. So it literally went from 10 to 16. There's your Galena bump. Dayanara, another name of a character on Orange is the New Black, climbed 19%. I checked this. Might've been 19%, but it wasn't even to 19. And then they started making ridiculous claims about Larry that I will just not even get into. So Orange is the New Black dianara is the new jennifer dog heaven is the new depths of hell and child is the new adult i am going to tuck my children into bed and i'm going to tell them bedtime stories filled with paradoxes moral ambiguities and straight talk about how when their dog went to that farm upstate there was no farm the dog had no soul and in fact it wasn't even a dog it was a domesticated rat with a collar they'll thank me one day And that's it for the show. If patriotism were a thick soup, just producer Andrea Salenzi would be a chowder, not a bisque. If patriotism were gruffness, managing producer of Slate Podcast Joel Meyer would be Sam Elliott. If patriotism were a behoodied hoodied coach of a team named the Patriots, Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, would be Bill Belichick. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. You can subscribe to our daily email at slate.com slash gistemail. Yo! is an app that we like. It will tell you every day when the show loads. Download Yo! and then sign up for podcast. We are on facebook.com slash slategist. Email us at thegist at slate.com. If patriotism were a missile, the gist would be an ICBM, even though Patriot is a missile. But it's not a very good missile, is it? I mean, it's not the Indian NAG missile. When are you going to blow up? Did you remember to detonate your payload? But, you know, it's probably better than the AS-3 Kangaroo Missile. Maybe uh, the Honest John Missile, the M50 Honest John Missile. I'm going to kill you. Yep. Maybe even a uh, SSM-N9 LaCrosse Missile. Hey, Trevor, want to do a funnel out by the lake house and then blow things up? And yes, if you're wondering, I found a compendium of missiles on the internet, and now this is my thing. I'm kind of a Mr. Missile-listicle. I will stop talking now. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz, this week on the Slate Political GabFest, did the Colbert Report change American politics? Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at Slate.com/slash podcasts.